before we get into our text this morning, I want to get us to think a little bit first. And I know we're not supposed to think in church. Tell me some nice stuff about God. Give me some t-shirt phrases and send me home with a smile on my face, right? We'll do some of that. But I want to get us to think first. Because uh, we live in an age of doubting. We live in a culture that doesn't really trust anything. Let's be honest with fake news and everything else we have going on, if there's not some kind of YouTube clip that's, that shows concrete evidence, and even then we think someone doctored it, we don't like to trust anything. We doubt we are a skeptical culture. And it's getting more and more so. We don't like especially absolute claims. Well, that's fine for you, but don't say that that is absolute and that applies to everyone for all time. Because our society automatically doubts absolute claims. So what is an absolute claim? It just, it's something that is perfect or complete, meaning it lacks nothing. It means it always applies 100% of the time. What does that mean? How does it work itself out? Well, one absolute claim would be it's wrong to murder, right? Most people, most cultures agree to that, you know, unless you're 30s Nazi Germany or unless the person is, is uh, too young to speak for themselves and they're an inconvenience, or unless someone doesn't agree with you, then it's easier to say, well, I don't mind them being murdered. I'll make exceptions. We do these things in our head. We rationalize things in our head. Like stealing is wrong, right? Taking something that isn't yours, everyone can agree with that. But it's not really that bad if you steal from the rich and give to the poor, steal from those who don't deserve it and give to those who deserve it. It's fine then. Or stealing's fine if you go through the drive-thru and the girl hands you two fifteen in change and she really owed you one fifteen. That extra dollar's not yours, but she handed it to me, so it's not really stealing, is it? Absolute claims can t- tend to get a little fuzzy because we don't want them to apply to us. Or what about lying? Lying is wrong, right? Well, we can just throw that one out of the window. We gave up on that one years ago. You know, it's already outdated. We expect most people to lie to us. And when they do, there are no consequences, so we continue to lie. Our whole justice system is not based on what is right or wrong, but what can you prove? And so we've taken absolute claims, things that are unchanging, and we've inserted our doubt into them. And that's why Christianity is very unpopular. Because we hold to biblical absolute claims. The culture doesn't like that. And we're unwavering on the truth of scripture. That's why it's unpopular to be a Christian these days. And the most important absolute claim that we have is that 2,000 years ago a man walked on the earth. His name was Jesus. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross. He was put in a tomb. He was there for three days. On the third day he rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning from this day until evermore. Absolute claim, no budging, we're not moving on that one. And what's even more offensive is he wasn't just a man, but he was God. The Son of God came to earth in flesh, and he's still living. It's a little harder to believe. And maybe even more so offensive, he had to die. He had to come and die. Why? Because we're wicked and we're evil. Uh Uh-oh, he said it, didn't he? And that's another thing we can't say. Oh, we're not evil. My child's not evil. How how dare you say that? Jesus came for our 
wickedness. Because a perfect and holy God needed a perfect offering for sin because God is too perfect and too holy to be united with wickedness. I don't like that God. God's not comfortable. No, he's not. He's not comfortable, but he's powerful. And he sent his son for those who trust and believe in him. I mean, these absolute claims are impossible to believe in 2017. But we're not the first ones to ever doubt absolute claims. We're not the first ones to ever doubt that someone could rise from the dead. I mean, this is not something new. This actually happened right at the very beginning. And we're going to look at that text this morning. So if you would uh, turn to John chapter 20 with me. If you have a, a pew Bible, it's page 907. So no excuses. I'll get you right there. Page 907 in our, in our pew Bibles. John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 24 through 29. And then we'll pray together. John chapter 20, verse 24. Still hear a lot of pages. I'll let you guys get there. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and, the, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you this morning singing your, play, your praises, declaring your truth, not as people who have it all together or all figured out, but broken people who recognize we need your grace more than we can explain or express. The only reason we can smile and sing and rejoice is because you loved us so much that like Thomas, in the midst of our doubting, you sought us. I just pray that this passage this morning would bring on new eyes for those of us who have read it before. Um, and for those who have never heard it, uh, that we would see some of ourselves in there and that Thomas is not very unique. That we all have these, these moments, but... Thomas comes to a place that we pray that everyone will. And I just lift up the rest of this service to the great name of, of Jesus, the only name under heaven in which man can be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier, Deshaun read the account from Mark, and we talk about what happened in the resurrection. So let me tell you a little bit where we are in John, and this is where, where we find ourselves now. So John's account has a lot of detail about the resurrection. So John um, talks about crucifixion. And if you don't know, crucifixion is the most heinous punishment that mankind has ever come up with, still to this day. Not only did they just put them on a cross, but they beat them. 
They beat them until their, their, their veins and even their, their arteries and their bones were, were visible. They mocked Jesus. They humiliated him. They slapped him. They made him carry his own cross. They gave him sour wine. They put a, a, a mocking plaque up above his head. I mean, this was not a comfortable ordeal. And this happened that when he breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. And the sky went dark. He was dead and they pierced him. They put a spear into his side to make sure that he was dead. And these Roman soldiers, these trained killers knew that he was dead because blood and water flowed out. They took him down, they put him in a grave, and they put a large stone over it. We could get five guys in this room and we probably would have a hard time moving that stone. It was a, a big piece of probably some kind of marble, granite, solid stone that was placed to cover up there. And they put guards in front of it so that the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities would not be put to shame because he said he was going to rise again. But he does. So John tells us that he appears to Mary. Appears to the other women and he appears to the disciples. And he has just finished talking with the disciples before our, our passage, and he tells them that the Father has sent me, now I am sending you out, and breathes on them the Holy Spirit, the power for ministry. And so now we find ourselves in verse 24, beginning with now Thomas. This could actually be translated, but Thomas. You see, before this, it's all celebration. It's good stuff. Jesus has risen from the dead. The disciples are celebrating. The women are celebrating. But Thomas. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. It's interesting that some of your translations may say Didymus. Um, the word Thomas, it, it's, a, it's a Hebrew name for, for twin. And Didymus is just the, the Greek transliteration. Well, what does all that mean? It's fascinating. In that culture... If there, were, if there were twins, you would name the first one, and the second one would be called twin. So it's like, here's John, and then here's the other one. So Thomas probably had some kind of inferiority complex. He's got a sibling somewhere, and he's just twin. Maybe that's why he doubts so much. Maybe that's, that's, why, he's, that's why he's the way he is. Um, we see a few things about Thomas uh, throughout the Gospel of John. In, uh, in uh, chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the, from the dead, and he talks about one day you know, that, um, that he will have to die and, and be raised, and they didn't really understand it. Thomas is the one who's so loyal to Jesus, but he's so pessimistic. He said, well, let us go and die then. He's the one to say, let's go and die. For him, it was, he, he's, he's kind of a, a pragmatist, right? That, that if something needs to be done, we'll, we'll, we'll do it, but I'm not going to believe it until I see it myself. In, in chapter 14 of John's gospel, one of our favorite verses, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, he, he says that because Thomas is doubting. Jesus says, I am going to show you the way in my father's house. I'm going to prepare rooms for you. And Thomas says, how will we know the way? Jesus stands in front of him like, duh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so this is Thomas. And so all the other disciples have seen Jesus up to this point, And they're telling Thomas... But what does Thomas do? Um, he doubts. I mean, this is, this is a term that's in our common vernacular, right? We understand doubting Thomas. If you've never opened the Bible, you've probably heard doubting Thomas. 
And when, in our James study, one of our deepest and toughest conversations was what do we do with, with doubt? Because we all struggle with doubt. How do we address doubt within ourselves? Why do we doubt? And how do we address doubt within others? And James tells us that those who doubt are like a wave that is tossed to and fro. Like a boat without a clear direction that is just tossed from side to side. When you doubt, you are literally wavering and you are getting off course. And so James, is, James tells us that if you doubt, ask the Lord, ask for wisdom. And so now we come to doubting Thomas. And so doubting is something that we're all familiar with. We talked about this earlier. We live in a doubting culture. And doubt is, in fact, the oldest temptation. What does that, that mean? Well, what, way, way back, all the way in the garden, uh, when everything was perfect and Adam and Eve uh, were in their perfect nakedness before God, and yes, it was a good thing, no embarrassment, none of that, there's a little voice from a serpent. It says, did God really say? Did he really say that you would die? So Satan did. The first deceiving action was, did God really say? And that's Satan's number one weapon up until this day. Did God really say? He doesn't have to say that the Bible is a lie. He didn't have to say that the resurrection is a lie. But did he really raise from the dead? Is this really something that happened? And going back to the garden, all doubt in the things of God is doubting God himself. And in the core of our being, it's because we want to be God. Ouch. We do. We want to be the ones to make the final decision. Like Thomas, we want to say, I need to believe for myself. I need to see. I am the final authority of what is right and what is wrong, what has happened and what hasn't. It's me who makes that decision. And so ultimately in our heart of hearts, we want to be God. And that's doubting comes from an enemy who doesn't need to give you a different gospel. He just needs to distort the real gospel. So what does that look like? Let's, let's get into our passage. I just want to set the stage a little bit. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, Listen. If your best friends, I mean, we, this is before the days of social media, everyone you know comes up to you and says, we have seen the Lord. Not we saw Jerry from down the street. Like, we saw the Lord. He was dead. We watched him die. We watched him put him in the tomb. We've seen him. It's like, no, nah, I don't believe you. Person after person, no, nah, I don't believe you. Everyone has seen him. And Thomas is saying, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails. Now, I want you to see something here. Uh, one of the things we do in our, in our Bible studies, we always look at what words are repeated, what words are emphasized. I want you to see what's emphasized in Thomas's declaration here. Because usually what is emphasized is the, the, the purpose of the writer. Thomas says, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe I did the emphasis for you in case you missed it. This is all about Thomas here. Thomas is the beginning and the end of the authority here. It's all up to if my eyes can see it. This is Thomas. He's saying, if I can't see it, if I haven't experienced it, I can't believe because it doesn't exist. Ever feel like that? Know anyone like that? As if our senses are the judge of all things. 
So a question we have to ask ourselves is what I see, feel, touch, and smell, is that all there is? Could there possibly be something beyond what I think I know? This is Thomas's struggle. Because to Thomas, the whole world is through the lens of his eyes. Can I see? Can I touch? Can I experience? If not, I'll never believe. And these are, these are strong words. We've talked about in the uh, Greek, they use double negatives. And English teachers will tell you never to do that. But in the Greek, they will do that. They will say, I will no not believe. That means emphatically no, absolutely not. I will never believe unless I do it myself. It's a very American attitude, right? Thomas was a man before his time. All right, so verse 28. Eight days later. Stop there. This is one of those things that we just kind of skim past. Eight days later. So they're saying on the eighth day, seven full days later, Thomas is still doubting. For seven days, Jesus has been out of the tomb. People have seen him. They've been talking about this. Trust me. You think things move fast in social media? Someone rises from the dead? Word's going to spread. For seven days, it spread, and Thomas is still doubting. And then, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. This is interesting. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He walked through walls, locked doors. His Something different about this risen Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Just keep your mind there. We'll get back to that in a moment because he appears in a room where he shouldn't appear. Let's keep going. So he comes in, says peace to you. And then he says directly to Thomas. Isn't that interesting? He comes in the room. John doesn't say he addressed anyone else. Goes right to Thomas. He knows the skeptic. He knows the doubter. He goes after his lost sheep. That is the character of Jesus as shepherd. Everyone else in the room believed, but he knew Thomas. He loved Thomas so much that in his doubting, in his skepticism, he sought him out. Thomas doesn't trust any of the most reliable sources. These guys he's with day after day for three years, they tell him and he says no. Jesus loved him so much that he comes in the room and speaks directly to him. And they didn't catch him up to speed. They didn't, he didn't hear Thomas's conversation earlier. He knew the nature of Thomas's skepticism. He said to Thomas, verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's amazing that even when we are stubborn, And we're thick-headed, and of course we know that never happens. Jesus knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what our our doubts are. He knows where our hang-ups are. And he knew Thomas. He read him like a book. He said, Thomas, feel my hands. Reach out and touch my side. This is Thomas stopped in his tracks now because he made this statement, unless I touch it, I will never believe. I mean, this is the most exciting and terrifying show and tell ever. Because you've got someone who is dead and now is alive and saying, I want to prove that I am actually alive. And remember, just a moment ago, we talked about his body, right? He walks into a room without opening the door. 
And so there's a lot of doubts and what we call heresies throughout the years to say, no, the risen Christ was only a spirit. He was never flesh. But he tells Thomas to touch my side. So it was possible to touch his side. So this is someone who can walk through walls, but yet can still be touched and seen and felt. His body is something different when he appeared in the room. He's God in the flesh. You know what one of these beautiful hopes are for those who are in Christ is that when we are raised again with him and scripture tells us that that like he went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to bear the penalty for our sin but so that one day we would rise again with him we get a glorified body so there will be no more pain the scars will be there we won't forget what happened but they will no longer affect us sometimes we miss the beauty of our glorified bodies, of what we can look forward to. The new heavens and new earth when there is no pain and no more hurt and no more disappointment and no more disability. But we are still ourselves. You can still see us. There's still distinguishing marks. It's fascinating to see that as Jesus is the first from the dead, that the writer of Hebrews and Colossians tells us that we will be with him if indeed we trust in him. And so... He has this show and tell here, and he finishes with, do not disbelieve, but believe. This is more literally, uh, stop being faithless. Do not be faithless. To not believe is a lack of faith. You know, and we believe in things all the time, right? We believe that more money will make us more fulfilled. We believe that this person will make me happy. We believe that my 401k is going to keep me nice and comfortable in my little nest egg later one day. We believe these things. We put our trust in these things. But do we believe in temporary things that can fail us and that will fail us? Or do we believe like Jesus commands Thomas in eternal things? Jesus showed him death cannot hold me. Believe in me. This is what you believe in. Don't trust your senses because they can fool you. And then verse 28, Thomas answers him. Now, as you notice, there's something missing in between verses 27 and verses 28. John doesn't tell us whether he actually reached out and touched him or not. It just goes from Jesus' proposition. He he kind of challenges Thomas and then Thomas responds. I think, I mean, the way that that this is written is that Thomas had all the proof that he needed. Because Thomas, it doesn't, John is very particular. If something happens, John is kind of like the the parenthesis gospel. If something happens, he'll give you a parenthesis, he'll give you a little bracket and tell you, this is why this is happening and this is what it's fulfilling. John doesn't say that here. Thomas just responds. So I think the irony is deep here. Because Thomas says, unless I touch it, With my own hands, I won't believe. Jesus shows up before him. And Thomas' response in verse 28 is, My Lord and my God. It wasn't his own senses that he trusted. It was the word of God, flesh incarnate, Jesus' words that said, It is I, believe. His faithlessness turned into faith at that moment. And he didn't respond out of his own experience. He responded out of conviction with encountering the risen Lord. 
And he says these incredible words, my Lord and my God. Now, remember earlier, it was unless my eyes can see and my hands can touch. So Thomas is still possessive in the way that he talks. But now he has made it personal. My Lord and my God. Lord is a, a, a human title. Uh, it can be applied to God, but the way that it's used here, it's, it's kind of like sir or, or, or master. So he's saying, you are my master, my Lord and my God. And God is obviously a divine title. So Thomas, in this bold declaration, is making this personal connection to Christ's humanity and his divinity in one sentence. And so he makes it personal. So something we say here a lot is that it's one thing to sing songs, sing about Jesus, sing about God, and talk about the acts that have happened. Until you can make it personal and say, my Lord, in my God, until you have been transformed by encountering the risen Christ, there's still empty words. To Thomas, this was personal. Because to Thomas, like most of us, his world revolved around himself. And now his whole world had been rocked by meeting the risen Lord. And so Jesus said to him, have you believed because you seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus responds to him in a way that Jesus likes to. It's so unsatisfying. Jesus doesn't say finally. Jesus said, you know, we, we always want to be patted on the back, right? Jesus said, you did well. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. I mean, it's why we are called believers. Because right now, if you are walking with Christ, if you have said, my Lord and my God, you have never seen him in the flesh. You can't count on your eyes and your hands. There is no doubt that I have encountered the risen Christ. And there is no doubt that if indeed you have, that he is as real as if he was standing right next to you. And we believe because we have encountered. I love, and we're going to get into 1 Peter over the next few months. I love what 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and 9 say about this. It'll be up on the screen, so you don't have to worry about turning there in, in, your, uh, in your Bibles. But 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy, with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Peter is writing to a young church that did not see the risen Christ, but they still believe. And they believed and it led to salvation. All right, so why is this important? Well, some of you, who are the more critical thinkers, the astute ones out there, were thinking that in the sermon outline, he goes to verse 31, but he only read to verse 29. If you didn't notice that, I won't hold it against you. But now we're going to read verse 30 and 31. Back on page 907 still, maybe. It'll be up on the screen. Now Jesus did many other signs... Let her get to him. There you go. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So remember I said that John's the parentheses gospel. I mean, this, this is the uh, footnote. So John is giving us narrative up until this point, And now he's saying, this is why this has all happened. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. If you didn't pick it up before, this is what's going on here. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John tells many. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell others. Uh, signs, miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on, on, on water, the healing of, of demon-possessed people. Uh, it can go on and on and on. And John is saying, and he says again, if they were all to be written down, all the books on earth couldn't fill what Christ has done in his short three years of ministry. But what is of most importance, John's saying, I wrote this whole thing, 21 chapters. John was the last one to write his gospel. He wrote it after all of the other ones because he wanted to make sure they got first things first. They want to make sure they got the essentials right. And what is essential? These are written so that you, directing this to his readers, may believe. Okay, do we just believe for the sake of believing? Many songs that talk about things that we believe in. It is so important what you believe in. He didn't just say believe for the sake of belief's sake. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by, why do we believe? That by believing you may have life in his name. John's not talking about the life that we walk in day to day with disappointments and and fear of death. He's talking about life everlasting. The same death that would not hold Jesus is the life he's he's offering without death. Because we will pass away in these bodies. But those who trust in Christ for their salvation, those who believe, those like Thomas who have seen the risen Christ will have life eternal. Thomas's encounter with the risen Christ is an example for new life. The greatest proof for the power of the resurrected Christ are every other resurrected life. Every other dead person brought to life. People like me. Most of my life doubted the promises of God. I believed the lies that I could be fulfilled in everything that brought me pleasure. I believed that if I couldn't see, touch it, or count it, it offered nothing to me. I believed that, that more and indulgence in everything else would bring me happiness. I believed those lies for most of my life. And I doubted the promises of God, because that can't be true. There can't be joy apart from all these things that bring me instant pleasure. But I was so wrong. God made it clear that I was very wrong. And I would not be standing before you today if Christ did not raise from the dead and raise me from the dead. Because on my own, I'd still be in the tomb. And everyone here who has encountered the risen Christ knows the reality of that. We know what it's like to say, I was lost like Thomas and Jesus found me. I was blind, but Jesus opened my eyes. 
So as we close this morning, I think back to where we started. I know it's been a while, 30 minutes ago or so. Doubting is a part of our culture. It is. No event in history is more doubted, more scrutinized, more criticized than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no event in antiquity is more documented and held closely. You know what's amazing about the skepticism about the, the, uh, the resurrection of Christ? Is you know who's most critical? Are Christian scholars. The Christian scholars are actually more particular about the details than those who want to disprove, disprove Christ rising from the dead. And trust me, I have to read these guys and I would not want to do their work because it is dreadfully boring. But they know where every account is, is held. They know where every manuscript is. They know what every other tradition says about the, the, the risen Christ. We have more evidence for the resurrection by the thousands of documents than anything else in that time period. Homer, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great are just rumors compared to the risen Christ. And nothing in history has transformed more lives than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he didn't just die for himself. He died for the sins of those who deserved to be on that cross instead of him. And how much he loves us in our doubting. Seeking us and saying, look, here are my hands. Here's my side. See where the spear went in me. Believe in me. Do you believe? Has the resurrection of Jesus Christ so changed your life that it gives you no choice but to say, my Lord and my God? For those of us who are believers, this is an everyday process for us. Because it's easy to say these things and sing these things, but then we go back to our real lives and we act like he's not risen and reigning. We act like he didn't pay the ultimate price for us. We act like we still need to agonize and worry about our daily lives. Can we rest in him daily? For some of you, you're like Thomas. No, I'm not believing. Unless he stands here. Unless I can put my hand on him. I don't believe. Let me tell you, he is indeed risen. And if he is risen... He is divine, and there is hope, and there is life eternal. And if he's not risen, then we should all just pack it up and go home. This is a waste of time. Listen, we are so glad you're here if you're a visitor. And we don't want you to come out of religious obligation. I know a lot of times this is Easter. Some people just check boxes. It's just what we do. That's and if that's why you're here, we are glad that you're here. We don't want you to do things out of religious obligation. Not one of us who's here every week is here out of religious obligation. No one thinks we have to be here. We want to be here. Because this is a place where we can wrestle through these things together. Because we are broken people who are not afraid to talk about real things and cry together and laugh together and look at our own brokenness together. If you want to walk alongside people who have encountered the risen Christ, 
We'd love to have you join us. If you need someone to talk to, let us know. If you need someone to pray with, let us know. That's why the body gathers. We're not here to say, look at me, I got it all together. We're here to say, look at the cross. And the reason why I can even stand before you today is because my Savior has risen. And he's risen that you may believe. Turn from your sins and have life everlasting in Jesus. And that is why we're here for Easter. That is why we gather every week and do everything that we do. Because of who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Sometimes you just need to make a, take a moment and let things sink in. Our Heavenly Father, before time began, before there was time, before there was earth, before there was sky, before there was water, before there was us, you knew us. You knew that Adam and Eve would sin. You knew that we would follow suit and reject you. You didn't leave us there. You knew that there was no hope for mankind apart from a divine redeemer. And it was part of your glorious plan that you would send your son for sinners. He would be a sacrificial lamb for dirty, stinky goats. Thank you for your son. Thank you that Jesus walked on earth and lived the life I couldn't live. Thank you that Jesus rose from the dead so that I might not be dead in my sins. And thank you for the life everlasting. Thank you for what you've done in this body. I am so humbled by the people here. I'm so humbled by those who love you with their heart, their soul, and their mind and just want to share what has happened in their lives. We want to be those people. And let us never forget where we came from when others ask questions and they doubt and they struggle. And let us be equipped to lovingly answer those questions. Because it's not up to whether we can string a sentence together or we have all the right answers. We know that you are the answer. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, the one that we celebrate and we say, Alleluia, Christ is risen today. Amen.